Welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. First up today is a problem that has been forecast since the COVID-19 vaccine development programs began, clinical trial dropouts. AstraZeneca reported that about 9% of subjects in its clinical trial have withdrawn because they were eligible to receive one of the vaccines already available. The problem was not, was not expected to have a large impact on the efficacy assessment, but the company is working on a crossover design to retain placebo patients in the trial for as long as possible. If dropouts continue, the company warned its ability to conduct long-term safety follow-up will be limited. So we knew this was coming. Pfizer and Moderna justified their unblinding strategies for placebo groups using this very issue. But do you still think we'll see long-term development problems because of this as we continue to go forward here? It seems like um, from Sue's reporting that the issue with AstraZeneca um, is largely going to be impact their safety data. So, um, you know, at least on the efficacy side, that's positive and um They'll obviously have safety data from other trials. I guess the thing that I was sort of wondering about and worrying about is some of the populations we most want efficacy data in are the populations also most likely to get eligible for vaccine faster and drop out. So I am curious, I guess, with future trials, how that will impact um, recruitment efforts and so forth. Because, um, you know, so I, I've actually seen I think some people more in that like healthy younger middle-aged adult frame <laughs> being like thinking like oh maybe I should sign up for one of these trials <laughs> now right because they realize how far back they are in the um, vaccine pipeline <laughs> sort of in the U.S. but um, and that's really great obviously but like at some point how much does that complicate things if FDA is still saying you know we need x amount of data in people over 65 or, you know, these certain um, populations um, might complicate things. So it seems like for AstraZeneca, they'll probably be fine, um, hopefully. But yeah, I do wonder as we need more vi vaccines to just different variants and boosters, if it's going to get more complicated. Yeah, it's certainly a, uh, um, a challenge you've seen uh, um, to different degrees for kind of on the uh, the therapeutics uh, um, side where there just haven't been enough, uh, you know, uh, robust, simple trials, uh, at least in the United States, to sort of answer a lot of those questions that people are hoping. And now, uh, you know, given this sort of kind of the uh, the model that sort of kind of is sort of kind of flowing over to uh, vaccines in a good way because sort of kind of there's so much uh, um, actual progress on, uh, um, you know, vaccination of the uh, the population. It's, uh, um, you know, hopefully a, a design challenge that uh, um, industry and uh FDA can rise to Derek, as you noted, they uh, um, they knew this was coming, and uh, you know uh, Pfizer and Moderna have taken different approaches in terms of, sort of kind of their uh, um, their efforts to get uh, placebo patients uh, vaccinated. But uh, um, hopefully, uh, um, one way or another, there will be uh, um, enough uh, uh, tracking of this to sort of give us some meaningful uh, results, even if uh, it means that uh, um, it's a little more statistically uh, um, complicated for people to to figure it out. Yeah, and I guess you know the the ethical question seems to have guess been answered, you know, to everyone's satisfaction in terms of whether or not placebo patients should be eligible and whether or not they should be told and you know all the all those kinds of things. But I wonder if 
you, you know, it, at some point that may have to be revisited, uh, you know, for whatever reason. Um, you know, the other thing is I think there's still kind of a window of opportunity here because we still we still are seeing supply, you know, limited supply, limited in terms of, you know, administration is still limited because we're still kind of going through these priority groups, um, you know, where, like Sarah just said, that, you know, it may be advantageous to get in a trial just because you can, you know, jump ahead in the line, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, but once we get to, you know, the point, hopefully, you know, later this summer where supply ramps up and everything becomes more widely available, they start giving it out in pharmacies and and, and make, you know, distribution a lot more widespread. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a real challenge to, you know, to figure out how to how to do a, you know, a blinded a blinded study here and then throw in the additional issue of, you know, do you compare against placebo? Do you compare against the Pfizer vaccine? Do you compare against the J&J vaccine? Which one, well, you know, what's your compare? You know, do you need a comparator here now? Right. Because since we have it, you know, since it's becoming so widespread. Right. And, that, and that's where I, I don't want to jump the gun, Derek, and move ahead in the podcast before you're ready. But I, I mean, I mean, I, I think we, we, we got some indications, you know, from FDA in their initial guidance on COVID vaccines that, you know, probably eventually there might be a point where, um, you know, companies might be able to do trials against with surrogate endpoints or maybe. Um, and I think um, and it's different, right? When your t- FDA is, um, you know, I wrote a little bit this, this week about how FDA is, you know, preparing to think about how it can approve updated vaccines that are adjusted for new variants and strains and so forth. Um, and there seems like they're moving to an approach where they're not going to require these large efficacy studies. They're going to use, you know, various immune markers and so forth. And um, there's certainly a big jump from allowing that for, you know, sort of an update to an already authorized vaccine to allowing that for a completely new vaccine. But you could also certainly imagine where that we may get to a point where that becomes um, the pathway, right? And that would then mean probably mean a lot fewer people in trials and make things much more feasible, particularly if, again, COVID does become this sort of chronic infectious disease we deal with like flu eventually i imagine they're already sort of moving to an influenza approach for some of the products that were cleared on big efficacy studies but you could sort of foresee a world where um they start getting comfortable clearing vaccines initially without these big efficacy studies potentially that's actually a really good transition because i i was actually getting ready to go there just now where you know the the other big news of the week was J&J announced that they had filed for their the emergency use authorization for their COVID vaccine, and the advisory committee was scheduled for February 26th, which is roughly three weeks from now. So, you know, that's good news. But then we also had the, you know, this kind of uh, this press conference with Dr. Woodcock and some others um, talking about how they want to handle the, you know, the, the, the variants that are starting to emerge now. So, Sarah, you can continue. That was, uh, you know, if there's anything else to add on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for, um, you know, readers who pay really close attention to the pink sheet, um, we've done a few stories on this topic. Um, 
Derek and Woodcock kind of um, maybe reiterated and solidified um, that comments F- other FDA officials were making are, is where they're going in terms of how they'll, what kind of data they'll be looking for for companies that need to update vaccines for variants. Again, as I was saying before, um, emphasizing they're probably not going to need big efficacy trials and they'll look for, you know, surrogate markers like antibody levels and so forth. Um, I actually thought um, it was interesting that she she wasn't even ready to say like that, you know, we're definitely going to need a booster for Moderna's vaccine or Pfizer's vaccine and so forth, even as companies like Moderna are saying they're already preemptively um, working on it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. And and she acknowledged that they're drafting this guidance, not just with the sort of emerging variants that seem to be problematic to um, in mind, but just knowing that other variants and strains may emerge given how the virus is spreading in the U.S. So they're trying to, I think, be very nimble and think of sort of multiple scenarios of what we might be dealing with and kind of lay out various pathways um, and and trying to also figure out um, when to what advice, you know, sponsors need about when an updated vaccine or a booster would be needed. She didn't really want to um, she kind of danced around providing like a numerical number, like if your vaccine, if the efficacy of your vaccine against a certain strain drops to a particular level, that's the cutoff. She didn't quite want to say that, although she pointed back to FDA's initial guidance about needing vaccines that were at least 50% effective for an EUA. But she also talked a bit about, you know, it really is going to depend um, a lot about what we know about that particular variant or strain and also just is that the predominant strain in the U.S.? Um, what's the prevalence in this country, and so forth? Um, so it's going to be like a very complicated calculus, um, I think. And and um, the other thing she brought up too, which is you know gets really complicated, is you know we may need multivalent vaccines that can deal with um, multiple strains, which is similar to how we do flu vaccines. Um, because of where we are in this, you know, very long vaccination process, some people may need boosters or some people got one vaccine may need one booster and some people got another vaccine may need another booster. Some people haven't been vaccinated yet, right, may need a shot that may end up getting a shot that doesn't even exist yet because of the changing strain. So it's going to be quite um, an interesting, um, interesting to see these what these actual guidances look like and kind of the advice they give sponsors for designing these studies. Yeah, when uh, Sarah and I were talking about her uh, story, we uh, discussed, is booster even the right term? I mean, if you're getting a new vaccine that that also addresses a new variant, is that a booster, even though it's kind of a redesigned thing, and sort of kind of what's the, what's the way to describe that? And, uh, you know, would this guidance apply? And uh, um, all those uh, challenges, I feel like we're, uh, you know, in the third act of a uh, a heist movie or something that's we're kind of we all know what the plan was or at least we're going to say in december like it's going to be this hard work to get everyone vaccinated but through these vaccines work and it's just a question of uh, you know improving production and we're kind of waiting it out and making sure that they get to everybody in the united states and the world and now there's this whole twist and we didn't know that the security guard was going to be walking around with the mutant uh, uh you know uh, variants and so how do we uh, figure that out and uh, you know fortunately uh, um Janet Woodcock's our action hero here, and uh, hopefully we'll sort of guide the way, uh, guide the way home. So, 
<laughs> yeah, it's it. I, I I was listening to a to a conference this week where they were discussing this this kind of I you know the the thinking behind how you deal with this and and they're one of the things they were talking about was that you know we have the U.S. has to improve. A lot of it comes down to surveillance, obviously, because you have to be able to tell when these variant strains start emerging. So a lot of that comes down to sequencing of these viruses. And the US the US capacity for sequencing is not is not apparently up to the you know the the level that they needed to be yet. And you know, so you you have to they have to kind of, you know, really hunker down on the surveillance part of this to get the you know, to be able to tell when variants are popping up because the they they were saying that like you know we're calling this like the UK variant, but it could have emerged somewhere else, and just the person happened to be in the UK when they sequenced the virus. So it's you know, the, 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 is this the surveillance and all this is is what is also has to catch up to be able to deal with this problem. It's a scary thought, Derek, that there are lots of uh, unnamed variants floating out there with uh, um, uh, unknown susceptibility to the existing vaccines. Yeah. Right. Although, again, like, you know, sort of a, um, as, you know, Anthony Fauci and others have said, you know, the virus is going to mutate and change and not many variants will not be problematic at all. So it's um, on the one hand, that's comforting, too. <laughs> um, but at the same time, again, right, it's this big surveillance challenge to sort of track what's emerging and figure out which ones are potentially problematic. Um and, you know, Woodcock was talking a bit yesterday, too, about, uh, you know, we, this also means we may need updated therapeutics. We may need updated tests, too, as well, because not all the the diagnostic tests are designed to test to, you know, catch the various potentially some of these variants, um, at least on the um, therapeutic side. In some ways, it seems much clearer cut for certain products like monoclonal antibodies, whether you whether the drug is going to work or not against the variant. Um, so that's a little bit <laughs> that on the one hand makes it easier. And on, on the other hand, again, because of the way they're designed, they're very specific to a, to sort of one variant of the virus. So they can become, you know, essentially no longer useful faster than you might like. And that's why they've sort of trying to be pivoting to cocktails. Yeah, the, the regulatory pathway here is also going to be interesting because, um, you know, they're like, like you said, Sarah, they're trying to be nimble and move, be able to move quickly and, and to adjust when they have to. But, um, you know, Peter Marks has already said that they may have to call in the advisory committee to look at some of these, you know, the first couple at least to, you know, to get comfortable with everyone. So, you know, you wonder, you know, you know, fast for, you know, in it is a relative term. I mean, you know, they might be able to, you know, the, the funny thing is that all they, I mean, Peter Mark said this, all they have to do really to change the, you know, to adjust the vac the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is, you know, it's like a software and a computer. You just, you you, you type in the, the, however you want to do it and it, and it changes it. So, but, you know, obviously there's a lot more, it's a lot more involved than that, but, you know, it, you know the 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 question of how quickly they can move here and and whether that's going to be an issue is is going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, and I, I mean, it seems like the public reaction on both ends of it is there are going to be people that are going to criticize them for moving too slow, um, and there are going to be people that criticize them for moving too fast. Woodcock um, also seemed to suggest probably might need an advisory committee at least at first for some of these products. Um, 
And she seemed very, she seemed pretty concerned about how the public perception again and vaccine hesitancy and um, the confusion that might emerge or sort of the anxiousness that might emerge about boosters and the need for them. So um, I, I just thought it was interesting that the vaccine hesitancy debate still plays um, weighs heavily on their mind and how they um, handle this. Um, because you've certainly seen some shift since we've seen the results from these trials and, you know, certain populations I think are much more comfortable, but um, you you still can't discount that we still do have this big vaccine hesitancy um, problem in this country. Yeah, it would be, it would be interesting to think that sort of that the, the booster somehow would create uh, uh, more concerns than just the general concept of, uh, of a vaccine or a new technology a vaccine like this MNR. Um, mRNA uh, vaccines are, um, but that was uh, definitely evident in terms of sort of kind of that, uh, you know, all the, uh, uh, the the clever guidance writing and sort of uh, um, uh, diligent uh, clinical trialing uh, will be all for naught if uh, people don't uh, actually uh, get these things uh, in their arms and, uh, um, you know, how, if, if uh, there's some tweak you can make on that process to make it easier to get people to, uh, um, to feel comfortable about it, it's all, uh, it's very important to do. It actually sort of makes sense to me um, in thinking about like sometimes how people react to the flu shot, <laughs> why they might get a little bit more skeptical if you start saying, okay, well, now we also think you need this booster or this, right? Because one of the reactions you sometimes hear from people in the public is like, well, I don't want to get a flu shot because they're not even, you know, they don't always work or they don't always work as well as you say, or, you know, so I think like sure. people start becoming like it's hard for people to maybe fully appreciate the evolving nature of the virus and the science here. And um, right. When you start sort of slightly changing course on them, um, they might start questioning things. And I'm not saying that's necessarily scientifically valid, but you can sort of see potentially where FDA might note past, like how there's parallels and how past hesitancy can develop. Oh, that's mind. a that's a great point. Uh, you know, especially if the uh, the variants sort of do reduce the efficacy of the um, the vaccine. I think think one of the public health challenges with uh, influenza vaccines is because you know just given the uh, the very uh, the variable nature of uh, influenza that the the shots are often not that efficacious just because they didn't uh, quite uh, predict the ones that were going to be circulating uh, um, uh, well enough uh, any given year, and so. Um, for an individual person, the shot may, you know, may not make, you know, a 95% difference like we're hoping it will with these uh, coronavirus uh, um, uh, shots. And obviously, that's not, you know, quite how it works on the, the individual scale, even with the coronavirus. But sort of, but that that for um, your individual incentive to get a uh, influenza shot isn't that great because it, you know, as a um, as a thing for a person, isn't that. Uh, um, uh, effective, but for kind of overall, if you look at the population, the more people that get a uh, influenza shot, the uh, the better off everyone is in terms of uh, uh, getting their influenza prevented. So uh, it almost becomes a more of a challenge, and but also more important to get people to take low efficacy vaccines because you need uh, uh, a greater uptake to make uh, uh, to make a difference. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 interesting, and and you know certainly something we're going to be watching going forward. Um, Sarah, we're going to go back to you for this next story, which is on Biogen's aducanumab and the role that CMS could play in the Alzheimer's drug's future. Yeah, so this is um, a story that um, sort of came out of um, 
the FDA CMS summit that Informa hosted, um, where we were talking kind of about the overlap of FDA and um, CMS regulations and where they can work together. And um, Biogen's aducanumab has, you know, garnered a lot of attention recently because it got a negative advisory panel review, but there's um, FDA, you know, seemed to be more positive about potentially approving it than its advisors, and it has very complicated clinical trial data. So the question then becomes, um, should CMS put a rubber stamp on it, or do they have more um, authority to kind of say, well, you know, FDA, maybe this met your standards for clearance, but we don't feel like it meets our standards, which are slightly different, um, to cover it for our population. Um, and Peter Bach of Memorial Sloan Kettering, who's very focused on drug pricing, as so you suggested, well, CMS could have authority to, instead of covering it, initially do like a pilot program through its innovation center and, you know, do a trial to get the data it needs to re to make a coverage decision, basically saying like, look, if FDA isn't going to get the data, um, the best thing to do here may be for CMS to figure out a way to get the data. And um I don't know. I'd be interested to see. I'm sure somebody would probably file a legal challenge to whether CMMI can really do that or not, because people are always debating what CMMI can and can't do. <laughs> but um, I mean, it, it, it just it is really quite fascinating because particularly for a drug like Alzheimer's, where most of the population is going to be in the Medicare um, space. So if Medicare doesn't cover it, you know, the FDA approval doesn't do you a ton of good. Um, and also because, um, you, I, it, it's just sort of, I don't know, it's fascinating to me because like, could you imagine if, I, I mean, I guess some, there has, there have been other cases in the U.S. with where FDA has approved drugs and some insurers have, um, pushed back, but be, it's usually more fragmented. So you don't get the same level of kind of outrage you will probably get if, if FDA clears this and CMS, um, becomes a, the, the sort of check on FDA, but Bach, um, he certainly feels like CMS needs to sort of stand its ground and maintain sort of the scientific independence and ability to do these, to, to make its own decisions and not have FDA sort of be the be all and end all of kind of what gets sort of widely distributed in the U.S. Yeah, obviously Medicare is a uh, important payer uh, for uh, um most everybody in the uh, um, the, the drug industry, but uh, uh, especially for an Alzheimer's drug, just given the population that usually sort of suffers from Alzheimer's, this would be uh, they, they may be the uh, essentially the only payer uh, um, in that uh, um, in that case. Uh, um, you know, I mean, another uh, um, option aside from CMMI would be for Medicare to do a uh, a national uh, um, uh, you know coverage analysis uh, of the product and see sort of kind of uh, um, sort of kind of sort of hold up to a question uh, um, that way and, uh, um, you know, perhaps uh, um, uh, get some leverage uh, through uh, um, through that. So, uh, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's just been a uh, um, fascinating product to watch from sort of kind of the, um, the, the, what looks like failed trials, just like, it, you know, everything in Alzheimer's uh, uh, tends to fail and sort of that was sort of uh, sadly uh, predictable, if not sort of kind of, uh, um, um, 
something that anyone, that's really nothing that anyone wanted to see, but then uh, they were able to revive it, and then there were questions about sort of kind of, you know, um, is this enough for FDA? And, you know, it seemed like it was more than enough for FDA, but the uh, advisory committee uh, really didn't like uh, how enthusiastic FDA was to a degree, uh, and sort of working with the uh, the company uh, um, so closely to uh, reanalyze the studies. Um, and then, uh, um, so it was sort of kind of uh, down on the roller coaster, and then sort of kind of uh, back up the roller coaster was uh, um, this complete response uh, um, uh, letter that uh, um, they got, that, or no, that the, uh, they did not get a complete response for letter that they got. Instead, they got a uh, um, to do fake um, extension. extension. And so we did a, uh, an interesting analysis from Bridget that said that uh, um, uh, drugs that get a, uh, uh, an extension uh, um, uh, are 4% uh, uh, more likely than uh, the general uh, um, enemy uh, um, uh, applicant to uh, to get approved. So that's a little bit of a, uh, a boost for uh, aducanumab there. And the question is for kind of what uh, um, what uh, data did uh, um, did Biogen uh, um, submit that uh, um, FDA uh, thought justified extending the review clock? And uh, you know maybe they submitted a very robust uh, um, uh, you know uh, um, post marketing plan to do uh, some real world evidence gathering that would sort of kind of address everyone's concerns and uh, um, that would be a wonderful precedent a because it would sort of be a, a drug on the product to keep, to treat such a uh, a terrible disease but also a, a way to collect uh, um, information through a uh, um, real world evidence uh, um, you know uh, um, fingers crossed that that's what it is uh, I I have my suspicions that maybe it's not but uh, um, it'll be interesting to see sort of what uh, um, what led to the three month uh, extension and uh, um, uh, you know for what CMS ends up doing uh, you know if there there's still some some doubts about the data if it if it does get approved yes I'm one thing I was thinking about and, and I don't know the answer to this is if you know you Sarah you talked about you know kind of the you know we you know, the, the 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 coverage to you know with private insurance we've seen drugs get approved and then private insurance comes in and says we're not ready to cover that yet I mean the the when you said that the what came to mind for me was Exondus 51, where there, there were insurers initially when that got when that got approved to, that said, we need to see more data, we're, we're not convinced yet. And they eventually, most of them eventually came around and, and covered it. But that is a, a, a much, much smaller population than you would see with Alzheimer's. So I'm wondering if, you know, you're, there's going to be a lot of pressure, you know, to cover this drug no matter what happens. I'm wondering if, you know, there's never been a situation where we've had a population as large as potentially the Alzheimer's population could be, where this kind of decision is going to potentially could be made. Well, I guess I mean, I, that got me thinking about some other things, like you wonder if CMS could do, um, like, could they, um, I mean, it's a term you hear, I think, more often in the device space, like the idea of like coverage with evidence development, or could they do something where they cover it on the condition of sort of collection of other data? Could they somehow start at a certain price point that CMS feels more comfortable with? And like, could they do anything in sort of price negotiation and say like, you know, sort of say like, well, with this data, we'll pay X. You know, if you get better data, we'll pay Y. I'm not, I, you know, I'm just sort of um, thinking about, you know, general ideas that people have said, obviously, this is would be a Medicare Part B drug. And uh, another thing I, I talked a little bit on the story is, um, you know, Part B payment reimbursement rates in Medicare are usually based on what is being 
you know, an average of what is being paid, you know, in other health insurance plans in the U.S. So how do you do that if Medicare really is kind of the single payer? Um, So it could present, you know, maybe some interesting um, motivations for Medicare to kind of figure, think about, like, do they need more kind of leverage or tools um, to better sort of figure out kind of ways to deal with these kinds of drugs in Part B? I think that's a uh, um, a fascinating question. You know, that, that uh, uh, you know, Medicare is sort of toyed with sort of value-based arrangements, uh, um, as you've been saying. I think there is, uh, at the moment, sort of no sort of kind of good mechanism for doing that. And, uh, um, you know, whether something can be established before uh, um, Adricanumab uh, is uh, knocking on the door, I don't know. But uh, this may be the impetus to uh, to really sort of gonna get, uh, get that kind of overhaul uh, um, in terms of uh, um, you know, data gathering and price setting uh, um, uh, negotiations uh, um, in Medicare. Okay, interesting. Well, finally, in another non-COVID story, we're going to look at the prescription drug user fee reauthorization. Over many weeks of talks, the FDA and industry negotiator, negotiators have considered potentially speeding up some user fee goals. The innovative review approaches would apply to supplements and potentially original applications that are intended to expedite access to innovative treatments. Nothing's been finalized yet, but this seems to be a response to the FDA's work during the pandemic. Assessors were able to, in some cases, like vaccines, dramatically cut review times. And now industry may want to see if this can be made permanent. So I'm going to throw it out there. Do you think the FDA can permanently shave off any more time in the review process? Um, <laughs> well, you know, what? two things like stuck out to me reading your story. One is that it, it, it wasn't really that long ago that they all essentially agreed to extend the review process, right, to try and get more drugs through the first time. Um, the other question is, you know, you talk about like, what is the staffing or extra resources FDA would need would need to really do this in a sustainable way? Um, COVID has clearly shown, and you talked about that, you know, when it really, really needs to, FDA can move faster. But uh, we have, they've said they have people basically working 24-7, not the same people ideally, but there are people essentially at FDA working around the clock in ways that aren't normal. And I don't think that's sustainable <laughs> um, for the long term. I don't think FDA is going to ha- um, do very well recruiting um, drug reviewers for the, you know, like overnight shift. <laughs> um, <laughs> or retaining people for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so, ha- so you have to sort of think about, you know, um, the, the, the resources that would involve to, you know, to move at, you know, this, the COVID type speed for all drugs all the time. The, um, the, 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 the model that, uh, um, uh, sponsors seem to be looking at is, uh, oncology in terms of the, uh, the speed of the review. And obviously they sort of, they, uh, um, uh, are, uh, you know, dedicated just like everyone else at FDA is dedicated, but they're not sort of kind of working the, uh, um, the insane, uh, um, uh, hours all the time. And yet they still seem to have a, uh, um, profoundly fast, uh, uh, review time. Uh, you know, I think, uh, one thing to keep in mind there in terms of, sort of kind of how broadly applicable it is, is that sort of that the, um, answers in oncology, of course, are not, uh, cut and dry, but it's a little, um, 
easier to make those risk-benefit trade-offs when it's a, uh, a life-or-death uh, uh, question in terms of uh, um, what uh, um, you know what the drug versus what the disease will uh, um, will do. And obviously, people quibble about, or, well, you know, why are we paying this much for uh, uh, drugs that uh, you know you know show a, a three-month uh, um, you know survival and uh, um, what have you? And that's certainly a, a worthwhile uh, debate. But if you uh, um, uh, more sort of kind of on the uh, things that are kind of the society value end than sort of kind of what the clinical data um, uh, shows you end. But if you try and sort of kind of, you know, uh, move that speed of uh, review and uh, um, uh, assessments or over to somewhere else where sort of kind of maybe it's not uh, obvious or kind of what the consequence of uh, uh, treatment or, um, you know, the, um, the uh, negative impact of a side effect uh, might be because the uh, um, uh, the disease itself is perhaps not as uh, uh, deadly or uh, um, uh, malignant, I guess, for lack of a uh, a better word. There, that sort of that uh, um, that it's uh, um, that it might be sort of uh, more of a challenge to sort of use that technique in another area. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the 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 discussions, at least the, the detailing of the discussions that I looked at. I mean, they specifically mentioned supplements, and you know, I, I could see supplement work speeding up. Um, especially if they, you know, the oncology uh, center of excellence has the summary review program, which allows them for supplements to look at summaries of the data instead of going, you know, down to the patient level, which we could have a whole other, you know, five day discussion on, on the, the merits of that and whether that's okay or not. But um, if they allowed those kinds of techniques to be used with supplements, you know, if, if they're applicable, of course, and, and it can be done, then you could see them speeding up some of the supplement review work. But yeah, they, I, I don't know if, you know, I, I just don't know if they could speed up, you know, I mean, to, I mean, 10 months is pretty quick, 12, you know, and that's after the filing review. I mean, there were, there have already been reports that say that, you know, they're, they're worried that primary, there isn't a whole lot of time to do the primary reviews and, they're trying to, you know, they're already saying they're rushed at the ends to do, to do post-marketing, uh, you know, commitment and post-marketing and uh, requirement and labeling discussions and so forth. So, yeah, you wonder where you squeeze out the, you know, another day or two. I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one one question to look at this uh, COVID speed is, are they, is it the same number of uh, review hours just were kind of compressed in the nights and weekends as uh, um if people burn out on these uh, um, these coronavirus projects, or have they actually created some efficiencies in terms of sort of kind of how they look at things, and sort of kind of it takes them less time to uh, you know review a certain section or uh, or what have you, and uh, you know if there are lessons there that can be applied more broadly, maybe that is something. But uh, you know I think fundamentally it's sort of kind of you know it's how much you know is this extra time worth it, worth it to sponsors and will they you know increase FDA resources to sort of speed it through in a uh, um, in a more consistent manner the the other thing that keeps coming up is the the expedited review programs and how the increasing number of applications are getting expedited reviews and so you know the argument has always been and we've I said this before a lot of people have said this before that you know if you can do if everything is a priority then nothing is a priority so if you're expediting the majority of applications, then you have to ask yourself, why aren't, why isn't this the standard review length? If it's, you know, if you're doing it for a, a whole bunch of applications already, so you know, 
th- that that conversation could come up as well. I, yeah, but again, it, you, you got to wonder if you know, do they have the staff to do this? Can they hire the staff to do it if they wanted to? Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of questions that probably still need to be answered uh, on that one. And even if industry wants to pay for it, um, at what point does Congress say no? Um, because there are people that. Um, even, you know, I think some big supporters of industry in general, but there are some members of Congress on the Hill that start getting um, nervous when they see how much of FDA's budget is paid for through user fees versus taxpayer dollars. And um, the balance on the drug side has is, is really has tipped quite a bit in recent years. So um, depending on how many resources this this comes down to needing, um, you could get in a situation where Congress doesn't want to rubber stamp it either. Yeah, this is certainly not the uh, the cycle given uh, Democratic control of both houses and the uh, um, both chambers and the White House to uh, be sort of kind of uh, appearing to be sort of kind of uh, um, you know a, a very uh, collegial with uh, with industry and uh, while uh, you know the public sort of kind of uh, may enjoy sticking it to uh, the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, that, you know, it doesn't want to be done in sort of a way that they feel like the uh, the regulators are actually just sort of kind of buying a uh, a review. So uh, um, you're sort of kind of uh, massaging that as a uh, as a political challenge. You're absolutely right, uh, Sarah. Yeah, it's uh, another thing that's you know it's ongoing, and and we're all enthusiastic to see what the you know the final outcome is on that one. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.